uh, God's repeated grace to habitual sinners. And I assure you, I haven't read your mail, but if you, you feel convicted through this, you probably felt like I felt when I was reading it. But I was thinking of a movie, and, and it came to mind was Groundhog Day. I don't know if you ever saw that movie. It's way back in the 90s, I think. And uh, it was about a weatherman from Puxatawney, Pennsylvania, who just dreaded giving this whole weather forecast on Groundhog's Day. And he decided that he would just not do a good job with it. Well, it ends up that he repeats the day over and over and over again. And he starts off repeating the day. He sees the same people and he gets annoyed with them. And he starts living for himself and he just repeats it. And he's just, you could just see he's going down. But as he learns to go on, he, he's seeing, I'm given a chance every day, every single day, to do right. Now, he didn't do it by the grace of God, but it's the idea that God's grace allows us to do right and move from a self-centered perspective to a perspective of helping others. And though you and I can repeat the same thing over and over again and, and want the same result, some would say that's the definition of insanity, but that's what our Bible heroes do. That's what we do. And we need to learn like them that God will take us back to certain places until we learn to live by grace and honor him in that. And so this is a convicting chapter. It's also comforting because as I read it and reflected upon my life, I can just see where God works over and over again. And I put a picture of a book up here by Max Licato. Uh, You can't really read the subtitle, but it's a good one. This is what it says. It's called Just Like Jesus, and it says... God loves you just the way you are. Amen? But he refuses to leave you that way. Amen? Amen. And I like that subtitle. It's it's a great subtitle. Because it addresses the issue that we all want to talk about, God's love, and we know that. But he refuses to leave us that way. He wants to make us, as the title of the book goes, just like Jesus. And so if you're not already there, turn to Genesis 20 in your own Bible, or it's on the handout. And you'll see it up here. And what we're going to see is God's amazing grace, his repeated grace in the revelation of sin. That's grace. When God reveals our sin, that's God's grace. And God's repeated grace in the rebuke of sinners. That's God's grace, that he, he exposes our sin. He, he confronts us with it. And then you will see God's grace in the use, in the restoration of sinners so that they might be used in the lives of other people. It begins in verse 1 where it says, For there Abraham journeyed towards the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and so he sojourned in Gerar. And so you can connect this. Chapter 19 is kind of parentheses in the life of Lot. And if you look back up at 1833, that's where Abraham had gone and he had met with the Lord. And it says, so he leaves there and he goes into this foreign territory. And look what he does. Abraham said to his Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Now, we have a little problem. It's been about 25 years between Genesis 19 or Genesis 12 and Genesis 19. But if you remember back, as soon as Abraham got the call, I'm going to take you and make you a great nation. Trust in me dwell in the land and the world will be blessed through you. He goes and they, there's a famine in the land. He goes down to Egypt and what is he? Lo and behold, he says, hey, if we go into Egypt, tell them uh, that you're my sister or they're going to kill me. 25 years from Genesis 12 to Genesis 19. In between there, we see him 
uh, build altars for God. We see him come to know God. It says Abraham believed in God and it was credited to him as righteousness. We see him be a hero and go and rescue Lot. We see him be even a bigger hero and go and intercede for Lot in prayer. And the same thing happened. It's like deja vu, the French word for already seen. It's like if you're reading 20, you're reading through the Bible and you're reading chapter 20, you're like, I've seen that before. It is. It's right. It's because you saw it in Genesis 12. But this isn't just common to Abraham. This is common to all God's people. We saw it in Lot that he was rescued from Sodom, but went back there and had to be rescued again. We see it in the life of Moses, where Moses sees somebody hurting an Egyptian and he goes and he murders them. And so in his anger, he strikes back. And later on in his life, The people are grumbling and God said, speak to the rock. And he takes a big old stick and he just whacks that rock and keeps going at it. So it happened in the life of Moses. Solomon writes, and you can see this um, verse up there, like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. That's Proverbs 26, 11. You see it in the people of Israel. If you read the book of Judges, People did what was right in their own eyes. They did evil against the Lord, and the Lord sent someone and put them into bondage. Then the people cry out to the Lord. He gives them a deliverer, and the land is at rest. And you say, Amen. And the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they followed after false gods, and God put them in captivity. They cry out to the Lord. He gives them a deliverer, and then the land is at rest. Oh, finally, they learned their lesson. And then the people did evil in the sight of the Lord and we could go on six and seven different times in that book. It happened in the early church. The Corinthians needed a reminder over and over again from Paul for they were continually walking away from God and living in the power of the flesh. And it's happened to me, right? You probably didn't know me in 1990, but there was a time where I was playing soccer And I got taken down from behind and something within me, the flesh, snapped. And so I get up and get in a person's face and the referee did right and pulls out the yellow card and he says, no more of that. You cannot act like that. 1990, okay? So after that, I begin to walk with the Lord, read the Bible, pray, surround myself with accountability work for a church, get hired by Eagle Bible, come to Eagle Bible. I mean, it's past me. That's, that was 1990 until Vail, 2009. Ben Daly invited me to play soccer with him. I go up to Vail. It's at 8,000 feet. I'd been training at 6,000, thinking I'm in good shape. I can hang with these young bucks, playing the game, playing well. And one of their players takes down one of our players. And I'm a pastor of a church, right? Walking with Jesus, reading the Bible, praying, surrounding myself with accountability. And they take down one of my players on our team. And so what do I do? Exact same thing. I get up, I get in my fa- his face. I mean, we're nose to nose. Ben Daly's there in the goal, probably going, this is our pastor. <laughs> He's invited his father to come watch. And so I have to go through. Ben, please, I, the, to, first it was to the players on the sidelines. That is not right. Please forgive me. That is just not how you react to 
to get angry at the right things, yes, that person should not have taken down our player, handle it in the right way. No, that is not how you handle yourself. Ben, we're on the car ride home. Ben, please forgive me. Call in. What's your dad's number immediately? Mick, uh, nice to meet you today. Um, <laughs> it's happened. See, God, God loves Judd just the way he is, but he refuses to leave me that way. And he will take me back to that situation until I learn to live by grace and give him glory. How about you? Do you have any repeated sins in your life that, that just continue to happen? He will reveal our sin just like he did to Abraham. Look what happens in verse 3. So here's Abraham. He's in Gerar. He says, Abraham or Sarah, we're going to work this little thing out. You remember back in Genesis 12. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you're a dead man. That's how God deals with people when they're about ready to break his promise. He said, You're a dead man. And that shows us just how God thinks of kings and leaders. Just like that, you're a dead man. Because the woman you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Over and over, you see it in verse 2, you see it in verse 3, and you see it bookended in verse 18. This is Abraham's wife. It's not his sister. You're supposed to laugh. That's Hebrew humor. (laughs) And so Abimelech says in verse 4, he had not approached her. He he had made in his own volition not to approach her yet. And he said, Lord, uh, will you kill innocent people? Did he himself not say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart, in the innocence of my hands, I've done this. Then God said to him, yes, yes. I know you have done this in the integrity of your heart. Catch this. This is is all throughout the Bible. I know you've done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. We got to understand this, gentlemen. We have influence on our wives so much so that Abraham went and said, she is my sister. She had bought into this and said, yes, he is my brother. We, we have influence. And he had led himself and his wife and his family into sin again. And notice what he says here. Um, the integrity of my heart and innocence of my hands, that is picked up by David in Psalm 72 about David the good shepherd. Abraham's going to be rebuked by somebody who is acting like a believer should act. He says, I am innocent. And God says, yes, I have kept you. And notice what he said, from sinning against me. We should have a verse up there of Psalm 51.4. When David repents of his sin, he had sinned against Bathsheba, Uriah, the whole army of Israel. And he says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. God basically said to um, Abraham, or not not to Abraham, to Abimelech, I'm the one who have kept you from sinning. You would have sinned against this woman, this man, an entire nation of people. I've kept you from sinning, and ultimately it's against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, he encourages him, return the man's wife. There it is the third time, for he is a prophet. So that, if, you're, if you write in your Bibles or you're writing on this sheet, here's the purpose. Return, restore this 
man's wife to the way it should be so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return to her, know that you shall surely die, all who are yours. And so God is showing us his sovereignty in keeping Abimelech from touching Sarah. And he's showing the seriousness of the marriage relationship. And he said, return her and you shall live. It's as if Moses were restoring Miriam when she and Aaron complained against him. It's Job at the end of that great book where he restores his three friends. And so there you see God's grace in the revelation of sin. He will let people know what's going on in your life because he doesn't want to leave you just the way you are. And so what happens is sin is revealed and then he is then going to, Abimelech's going to rebuke Abraham. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, called all his servants and told them these things and the men were very much afraid. The men who do not know the Lord, by the way, when Abimelech refers to God, he's not talking to him in covenant language. He's not using the word Yahweh. He's using the word Elohim. It's to give us indication that this man doesn't know the Lord. He's a moral man, but he isn't in covenant relationship. But he and his household respond to God's word the way a believer should. It's irony. You're supposed to read that and go, shouldn't that have been what Abraham did? But then Abimelech called Abraham and said to them, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? And he asked a third question. What did you see that you did this thing? Three times, three questions. And it's for us who are reading, for the Israelites who are reading, are going, isn't that exactly how God dealt with Adam and Eve? When Adam and Eve did what they should not have done, and I love that. That is the phrase that summarize, summarizes this whole chapter. You have done to me things you ought not to have done, and that is called sin. And God will reveal our sin, and he will rebuke us for it. What is this you have done to us? And if we're reading this, we're thinking, that's exactly when God comes, he never is quick to judge. He always collects the facts, and he says, Adam, what have you done? What have you done? He goes to Adam, and Adam, what does he do? He, he says, Lord, I have sinned against you. I, I, took the, I should have stopped this thing. I, took, I shouldn't have taken of, the, taken of the apple. I should have stopped Eve, and we, and we should have stopped. That's not what he said. But the woman that you gave me. Now watch this. How's Abraham going to respond? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my father, and she became my wife. He blames God and his wife, just like Adam. It's technically true. I mean, if we're going to get technical, but we can be absolutely technically true and totally innocent. So yes, she was not... She was his sister because she came from the same bloodlines, but she's not his sister. She's married to him. Sarah's what? Sarah, his wife, a man's wife, his wife. And so Abraham, just like his grand, great, 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 great granddaddy, Adam, blames God. Well, I didn't think there was any fear of God in this place, so I'm going to play. I'm not going to trust God, so I'm going to act in the flesh, and so here's what we're going to do, Sarah. That's what we do. We make excuses. And the pagan sometimes has to tell us, you have done to me things you ought not to have done. And here's the problem with Abraham's 
misjudgment. He said, I thought there was no fear of God in this place, but we just read when the men of this city heard God's word, they were all in fear. And notice it says fear of God, not fear of the Lord. Again, showing us that these are not, these are just good moral people, not necessarily in covenant with God. And in 13, he gives us an excuse and he had set up his excuse as a policy. Look at the end of 13. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, boy, it's easy just to put, and God caused me to do this. He's right. The Lord is the one who called him out of earth. The Lord is the one who gave him the call. The Lord is the one who's enabling him to do this. He's absolutely right. I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we should go. Say to me, he is of my brother. He, he basically made his, his sin a policy. This is what we're to do. The woman that you gave to be with me. No, no, he should have gone in and said, Lord, I know we're coming into this land and I've messed this baby up once and you got me out of that. I know you can do it here. But that's often not what we do. And you couple verse 13 and for the end of verse 9 together, and this is kind of that, theo- that weird theological baggage that we can carry around with us. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, as Abraham was a believer in Yahweh, we do things we, that ought not be done, and then we put a spin on it. We're just as good as those folks on TV. Well, my kids make me angry. Do they? Do my kids make me angry? Or do some of the things they do reveal an angry heart that's already within me, right? Or this situation at work or this economy makes me anxious, as if you're a victim of anxiety. Or my success in certain things makes me boastful. I mean, I wouldn't boast, but I'm so good at soccer. That's not right, right? Those make me where certain situations where I've got now a bag in my hand to go invite someone to church. And, well, that, that just, I'm so tentative, that makes me cowardly. So the bag makes you cowardly? That's how we do it. We take, well, I, I believe in Jesus, but we twist it. And we just, instead of saying, I can be angry, I can respond with anxiety, I can be prideful, I can be a passive coward, or I can be driven got to do this. This has got to be right. This has to fit here and here and here because, because God taught, and then I can talk about it. Well, God says that God is a God of order and he likes excellence and planning and you got to get it. And then you can kind of use God in your own policy driven sin or man, things just aren't working out in this situation and this weather just makes me depressed. It's what we do. We do things we ought not to have done and then we put a spin on it. That's what I do. It's what you do. God loves us just the way we are, but he refuses to leave us that way. Lucada was right. So God, God exposes our sin and he changes us. He reveals it and rebukes us so that we can serve others. Look at the end of this chapter. So comforting. 1 through 13, kind of convicting. 14 through 18, very comforting. And Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it it pleases you. 
And so he, he plunders Abraham and he returns Sarah. This sum that he gave, as one commentator says, is a fabulously large sum. It's 167 days, about a year's worth of wages for a day laborer in Babylon. Here you go. And he returns Sarah and he says, behold, I've given, and now watch this kind of, I don't know if he's being sarcastic or if, if Moses is putting it in here for us to kind of catch this. Uh, I've returned to you. I've given your brother a thousand pieces. Ha, it's not his brother. That's not his brother. That's her husband. It's a sign of your innocence, which is basically Abimelech saying it's a sign of my innocence. It's a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all with, who are with you and before everyone you are vindicated. Basically, Abimelech is saying, don't ever say that I didn't live with the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands. God blesses the unbeliever in spite of his sin. That's what you see in verse 14 and 15. God restores the relationship in verse 16 and in 17. Then, Abraham prayed. It was told in seven, return this man's wife for he's a prophet and he will pray for you. Then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah and we get it a fourth time, Abraham's wife. And so you see this revelation of sin, the rebuking of the sinner, and the restoration to where it should be so that that sinful person who has been saved by grace could go and intercede for the one who needed God. Amen? Can God use a sinner? He uses me and he can use you as well. We, all of us, can be repeatedly doing the same things, but God extends his grace. Let me tell you about one more, and then we'll look at the truths of this passage. One more person in the Bible. Tell me, young people, who this is. Chosen leader of the 12. He's called the rock. He denied Christ three times. Three times. After he said, Though everybody fall away, I won't. And they all said the same thing. I love that little phrase. Everybody will fall away, but not me. And three times, you look like one of, no, that's not me. You, no, you sound like, no, you're one of his servants. No, and he cursed. And then Luke tells us, and Jesus looked at him. And man, that's one of the most powerful verses. And Jesus, who was going to die for this man's sin, looks at him, and he's restored three times by Jesus. The refi- he, and Jesus says, doesn't even call him by his name, the rock. He calls him by his, his little boy name, son of Barjona. And so he, he is the leader. He denies Christ. He's restored. And even after that, at the Jerusalem council, he hypocritically goes and he eats with the Jews because he's still fearful. Yet, this man leaves letters to us of reminders of God's grace. So good are Peter's letters, right? He's a, he, in my life, he's a perfect example of one who ready, fire, aim. Ready, aim, fire. Peter 
can be so zealous, yet he can be so scared. He can be so uh, on fire for Jesus and yet denies him right by the fire. And though he does that, he leaves us with two of the greatest letters in the Bible and they end with this. I've written briefly to you exhorting and declaring that it is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Here's a man who has learned to stand firm in grace, and he ends his second letter. Not only do we stand in grace, he says, but grow, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So what can we learn here? Just three quick principles from the from Genesis 20. Number one, God will not let his people get away with their sin, verses 1 through 7. He will often take us back to places of our failure until we learn to succeed by his grace. God will call his people to account, 8 through 13, and God will use repentant people to restore relationships. The promise of God about Sarah having a baby, humanly speaking, was put in tragedy, in jeopardy there, because Abraham traded it for his personal safety, but God would not let his promises be thwarted. He says in Job 42.2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. If Sarah's going to have a baby by Abraham, there's not going to be one person that comes in between them. Number, And then what we can learn from that is God will use pagans, sometimes those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ to rebuke us. We can learn from anyone. I can, I can learn from my daughter when I've spoken wrongly to my wife. She'll look at me and just look, give me the look like that was not right. My sons as well. God blesses us in spite of our iniquity. This isn't a, a test case of go on sinning that grace may bound, but it, it is amazing to us, to me, and it should be to us, that God still blesses us in spite of all our sins. And it's not just little blessing, but he showers us with them. And our sin has community effect. Abraham's bold lie left a bunch of ladies barren. And that his lie affected community. Our sin, whatever it be, affects not just us, but those around us. But in God's perfect sovereignty, he chooses to work through sinful people so that we may bring his grace to the world. So how do we apply it? Be grateful when your sin is exposed, right? Don't be going, oh man, be grateful. Rejoice in the fact that God would not let you stay that way. In fact, there's a verse, I didn't read it here, but Numbers thirty-two twenty-three says this, but if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord and your sin will find you out. Don't hide it like Abraham tries to do or like we try to do. Be grateful when God reveals it. Here's an issue in your life. A, we often call them blind spots. Here's an issue in your life that you need to work on that I need to work on. We all need to work on. And be thankful for people who speak truth into your life. That is where we as a church, not just Eagle Bible Church, I think the church, and this is a big issue. We should write a book on it. Maybe call it The Peacemaker. It's a joke. There's a book called Peacemaker, right? We're, we're not really good at this. We live in, in a very tentative, um, 
uber-sensitive culture that, well, it's none of my business. I don't don't know. We need to learn how to give rebukes lovingly, and we need to learn how to receive them well. Because the Bible tells us faithful are the wounds of a friend. If we think about that, just those, that phrase, we need to be friends first, be close enough to connect and caring enough to confront. But sometimes it hurts. It hurts when I'm, si- when, when I'm sitting at a coffee shop and a brother of mine's in pain because of a relationship and, and some things that have happened in his life that are detrimental and I'm just giving him theology. Just, you know, and he just said, man, I, I just wanted a pastor that day. Oh, ouch, that hurts. But it's right. So the next time we get together, it's not, here's a truckload of theology. It's, how are you doing? How are we doing with that? So did it hurt when I initially received it? You bet. Was it good for me? Absolutely. It's like cauliflower. And finally, be ready and willing to intercede for others. Understand this Christmas season is not about the stacks of stuff under a tree, but it's about God literally sending his son to die for us so that we could go, and I love it, just connect it to what we're saying, go tell it on a mountain. That's why we're here. He didn't just reveal Abraham's sin to say, see, you did the same thing over again, turkey. He didn't just rebuke him to say, see, you're wrong, I'm right. He revealed it, he rebuked him, and then he restored him so that he could go and intercede for others. Father, Thank you for exposing our sin to us and to others so that we as a community of believers might build each other up in love. That's what the church is called to do. Help us to to learn how to give rebukes lovingly, to receive them willingly so that we can become more like your son. You've promised that's what you're going to do. And I thank you that you're forming us to his image so that one day when he comes back, we will be able to stand in his presence, not be incinerated, and to worship the triune God forever. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who convicts us of our sin and bears the fruits of himself so that the world might see in us something different. Help us to be grateful, thankful, and ready by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray, amen those men who were helping with communion would come forward.
Obviously, we're, we're in the time of season of, of gift giving and, and gift receiving. And in a lot of uh, respects, it brings out the worst of us and the worst of our culture, uh, even though the reason for it is absolutely the best uh, gift we could possibly imagine. And um, one of the joys of having your kids home coming back from college is they get to share with you some of the, they get to enlighten parents, put it that way, with some of the, some of the things that we may not pick up on otherwise. And the other night, um, Teller Maggie shared with us a, a video clip. There was a late night talk show host who urged his viewers to go out and give their kids a gift like three weeks before Christmas. Wrap it up, put a bow on it, make it look like a real nice gift and stuff. Give it to the, give it to them. But the gift was not supposed to be something fun. And in a number of instances, it was like a half-eaten sandwich or a half a bottle of Windex or, or something like that. And, and the reaction on the kid's face when they opened it up was what most parents would consider pretty horrific. You know, kids screaming, throwing a fit, throwing a tan- temper tantrum, and uh, a pretty, pretty ugly display. And it's kind of funny until you think of... How would my kids react? You know, how would how would I react with with a gift like that? That's the ugly side of of Christmas, the materialism, our expectations, and and what we want out of out of the gifts that we receive. The upside is we as believers um, should hopefully have a very different perspective on Christmas and gifts, and the the greatest gift that we have obviously, is Jesus Christ. And Judd kind of showed these packets, and I was just looking at the front of it. It says, the good news of Christmas. 